Love is the greatest shaping influence in the universe. When a child feels loved by their mom and dad, that child will feel safe and secure. They will be free to grow and to learn and to develop. Children are made to be loved. When you look at kids, you just know that children are made to be loved. On Wednesday night at my community group, uh, there is a cute little baby girl, and uh, this little baby girl was being held by her her mom, and a fist fight nearly broke out within our group over who was going to be able to hold this little girl. I mean, you saw her, and everyone wanted to hold her. I won that uh, fist fight, in case you're wondering. I'm just kidding. But everyone wants to hold the baby because children are made to be loved, and children are shaped by that love. Or consider when a child is abandoned or neglected. That child will be traumatized, even if they don't know what's going on. They will be shaped by the absence of love. Or if you're single and you are ready to mingle and you fall in love, watch out. It is going to transform your life. Uh, do, you, do you guys remember Meatloaf? Uh, not the food, but the singer, Meatloaf. I haven't thought about the, the singer for a long time, but I heard the song this week, uh, I Would Do Anything for, for Love. That's, that's Meatloaf. And I think that captures the nature of love. That it, you develop a heart that says, I'd do anything, anything, anything. It doesn't matter what it is. And for thousands of years, humanity has observed the profound shaping influence of love. Your life has been shaped by love. Your life will continue to be formed around the people you love and the people who love you because love is the greatest, not the only, but the greatest shaping influence in the universe. And one principle we need to observe from uh, Romans chapter 5 is that your understanding and experience of God's love for you will shape your life more than all human relationships combined. And see, if human love shapes our lives, which it does, then what will happen to a person when they experience the love of God? If your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your spouse, with your kids, if that love will shape you, which it does, then what will happen when you know the love of God, when you experience the love of God? And to help us understand the love of God, the Apostle Paul is going to highlight three aspects of God's love for us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The first is the experience of love. The experience of love. Verse 5. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, one of the great truths of the gospel is that when you become a Christian, when you hear the gospel, you turn from your sin and you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are justified by faith. You are then at peace with God. And it says that God gives us his Holy Spirit. So to be a Christian is to possess the Holy Spirit, that you have God's Spirit dwelling in in you. Now, why has God given us the Holy Spirit? I mean, why has God given us the Holy Spirit? Well, there are many reasons, one of them being in verse 5. It says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So God's Spirit has been given to us so that God's Spirit has been poured out in our hearts, that God's love might be poured out in our hearts. That's the whole idea, that we might experience the love of God, that we might know the love of God. One scholar says that verse 5 could be translated, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out and is being poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This means that experiencing the love of God is not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time event, that Christians don't just experience God's love one time. Rather, throughout the course of our lives, God's Spirit continues to pour out the love of God into our souls. That as Christians, we are to be more and more convinced of his love 
every year that goes by. As Christians, we should be more and more convinced that God loves me. This also means that God's love is so great that we need his help to know it. If God does not help us understand his love, it will never land in our souls. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul Uh, the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. This is what he says in verse 18. And may you have the power to understand that we need power to understand something. He's praying, oh God, may they have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. Verse 19. May you experience the love of Christ though it is too great to fully understand that The love of Christ, it is a doctrine that we need to understand, but it's more than a doctrine. Uh, That we need to experience God's love in our souls if our lives are going to be changed. And look what happens when we understand the love of God and experience the love of God. Verse 19, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And that's what we want. We want to be full of life and power. But where does it come from? Well, it comes from experiencing, knowing and experiencing the love that God has for us in Christ. I remember years ago talking to a dad who was crushed by a situation happening in his home, uh, that he was having a lot of trouble uh, with his oldest son, a lot of tension, a lot of fighting. And uh, we got together, I got together with this father and he was sharing what was going on. And this dad, he had a a breaking point. And what happened was that uh, he was talking with his son, a lot of conflict, and he looked at his son and he said, son, I love you. And his son responded by rolling his eyes and scoffing at him. And he said something like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. That was his son's knee-jerk reaction to the statement, I love you. And in that moment, my friend realized the true nature of the problem that the true nature of the problem is not based on the curfew for his son or the screen time, how much screen time he should have, or his kid's friends. He said, the issue is that my son is not convinced that I love him. And in the same way, so much of the disobedience and dysfunction in the Christian life comes down to not being convinced of God's love for us. When discipleship stalls out, when people stop making progress in their faith, when people lose their zeal for Christ, when there's no enthusiasm, no excitement about God and the kingdom of God, what is going on? It is that we, we ha- have fallen into a condition where we're not convinced of God's love for us. It's, it's, it might be an intellectual exercise, but it's not alive and well in our souls. And when we're not convinced of God's love for us, then it's really hard to trust God. It's really hard to believe that he knows what he's doing. So when you run into trouble, you run into difficulty, you're way more likely, if you're not convinced of God's love for you, when you run into difficulty, you're way more likely to say, I'm gonna take things into my own hands. I'm gonna do life my way. And we abandon God. And so I wanna ask you this morning to consider the question, do you know the love of God? Are, Are you convinced in your soul that your creator loves you? That the God of the universe loves you? The Swiss theologian, a man named Karl Barth, uh, he, he has made incredible contributions to the faith, to Christianity. He's a philosopher. He's a theologian. He's a, a professor. He had many students. He's written many uh, books. He's, he's moved the ball in so many different ways in, within Christianity. And at the end of his life, he was asked by one of his students. He said, you know, Dr. Barth, what is the most profound doctrine in the Bible? 
And he responded with a smirk on his face, and this is what he said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I hope that's the response of all of our hearts. What is the most profound doctrine in the scriptures? It is that the God of the universe loves me. And if that does not shape our heart, if we're not convinced in our souls, Christianity is very, very difficult. Very difficult to live out practically. Which leads to the event of love. The event of love. That the love of God is more than an experience. It can be an experience, but it's more than an experience. The love of God is a proven reality, a demonstrated fact in history. So how do you measure love? If you're, if you're trying to measure love, how do you measure love? Because we use the word love all the time. We'll, we'll, we'll use the word love to describe uh, a person uh, or things in our, in our lives. But when we say love, we don't always mean the same thing. Uh, there are people in our lives that we love more than others. So how do you measure the depth of love? Well, if you're going to measure love, there are two factors you have to take into consideration. First is the costliness of the gift. How much does the sacrifice cost you? Second is the worthiness of the recipient. See, there is no love without sacrifice. If you don't sacrifice, it's not really love. So there's the cost of the gift, and then the worthiness of the recipient to receive the gift. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. Likely, there are people in your life that you'd be willing to die for. If I said, make a list of 10 people you'd be willing to die for, I hope that you have some people on that list, at least one or two or three. I I bet a lot of you would have a lot of people in your life you would be willing to die for. I know uh, in my mind, it seems, uh, at least as a hypothetical thought experiment, it seems like it'd be easy to die for my wife and kids. Out of all the people on the planet, I think, I think I would joyfully die if it came down to it. Die for my wife and my kids. If someone broke into our house and someone needed to take a bullet, I think I would do it. And there are other people in, in my life where I think I would die for them. And I would die for their kids. There's some of you in this room. I would die for you. All of you? No way. So you're just, just kind of on your own. A lot of you, actually. Um, <laughs> but some of you, I would die for you. And when you face death where someone's going to die and someone's going to live, uh, the calculations begin to change in your soul. Uh, you begin to think about the world a little bit differently. And see, if, if it came down to it and I were to die for my wife, that would be a, that would be a costly sacrifice. There's not much more I could give higher than my life. But see, the worthiness of my wife to receive that gift is high. It's it's high. There's not much distance between the cost of the gift and the worthiness of my wife to receive that. She's better than me. Her life in so many ways is more valuable than my life. And so I think I would joyfully lay down my life. But let's consider who we are. Let's consider who we are in relationship to God. The way Paul describes us in Romans chapter 5, he says that we are helpless. He says this in verse 6, that we are helpless or powerless. He says we are ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. He says we're not good or righteous. And in verse 9, we see that we are under wrath because of all of those truths. We're sinners, ungodly, enemies, righteous. We're not good. We're not righteous. No, not one. Therefore, we are under the wrath of God. And what I have discovered over the years when, when I talk to people about our condition as sinners before God, what, what often happens is we say, we say, yeah, 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 but, 
God obviously is going to take into consideration all the good things that I do. Therefore, I'm okay. Like right now, when, 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 you, when you look at this list, helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies, under the wrath of God, does that resonate with your soul? Like, do you say, yep, that's me. One of the great barriers to understanding the love of God is that we have such a high view of ourselves. We think so highly about who we are. Uh, people talk all the time about how we have such, our, our culture, people have, so many people have such a low self-esteem. They think so lowly of themselves. And I think, no way, no way, no way. The issue is we think so highly of ourselves. We, we do not understand our condition before a holy God. We don't see ourselves as helpless. We don't see ourselves as ungodly. We don't see ourselves as sinners, enemies of God, rightfully under the wrath of God. And so when the, the word of God speaks of God's love for us, we say it's good that God loves bad people, but I'm not one of them. And it's built on the assumption, that way of thinking is built on the assumption that, that maybe as human beings we have this top layer, this outer layer of sin and ungodliness. But what God is going to do, because he's smart, is that he's going to kind of peel back that top layer of sin in our lives, that top layer of ungodliness in our lives, and he's going to get to the core of us. And when, when God really looks at the core of who we are, what he's going to find is a whole lot of human goodness. I have a lot of goodness in me, and I have a lot of virtue in me. And so God's going to, he's, he's going to just peel back that layer, and because I'm actually good, then he will love me. He'll love me because I'm actually a good person. But just consider this for a moment. Uh, I, I would argue that the top layer of humanity is obviously the most virtuous. Think about that for a moment. That the, top, the outer layer of humanity is the most virtuous. It's the most presentable. It's the most, quote, righteous. And that the deeper you go, so just imagine a human being peeling back the layers the deeper you go into the human soul, the darker it gets. The more dysfunction you find. And we, all of us already know this to be true. We, we know the deeper we go into ourselves, the darker it gets. How, how, how do we know this? Well, uh, are you more virtuous in public when everyone's watching or in private when no one's watching? Are you more sinful in your behavior and what you do or in the way you think? All of us have the same answer. We're better in public than we are in private. We're more sinful in our souls than we are in our actions. That means that the deeper you go, the more you peel back the, the, the onion of a human being, the deeper you go, the closer to the core you get, you don't find virtue, you find darkness. And so Paul is arguing here. He says, this is who we are. God knows us to the very core of our being. And he says that we're sinful. We're enemies. We're anti-God. We want to rule our lives. Verse 7 says, For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare, dare to die. Verse 8, But God proves. I love this word. He proves it. He demonstrates it. God doesn't just say, I love you. He demonstrates his love. He has shown his love. He has proven his love for us. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, at the height of our sin, when we deserved it the least, Christ died for us. He died for us then in our ugliness. 
in our wretchedness, as we, sh- as we would, human beings, as we shake our fist in his face. That's when Christ loved us the most. That's where he proved his love for us. And his, the point he's making is it's not because we're good. It's because we're not, we're not good. It's not because we weren't enemies. It's not because God found virtue in us. God loved us because of who he is. That God is a God of love. You know, imagine someone uh, breaks into your house just for a moment. Someone breaks into your house and kills your spouse. What a tragedy. Kills your kids, but one of your kids is able to escape. Eventually, the police track down the guy who kills your, your wife and your kids, and they arrest him, take him to trial. He stands before a judge. He confesses, I did it. I, I committed these crimes. The evidence is presented. The verdict is rendered guilty. And a few days later, a few weeks later, uh, the day comes for the sentencing to happen, where the judge will deliver the punishment. He will announce the punishment. Imagine the agony of your soul to go through all of that, all the hurt and all the pain, and the day of justice has come. And so you walk into the courtroom. The man who has sinned against you so gravely is sitting right there. The judge then begins to speak, and he announces the verdict. This man is guilty. And yet, because I am such a merciful and loving judge, this man who killed your family may go free. No punishment. What would happen in your soul as a father, as a husband? Would you praise the judge for his mercy or despise him for his injustice? You would hate that judge. You would hate that judge. You would say, you don't deal with humans. You don't take human suffering seriously. You cannot do that. It's wrong. It's evil. And here's a note you need to understand about God. That a God who forgives sin by sweeping it under the rug is a God you would never love and worship. And so what that means is that a God who would just look at human sin and say, no big deal, sweep it under the rug, no consequences, is a God that you would hate. You would hate him forever because he would be an unrighteous God, a God who doesn't deal with human suffering in a serious way at all. God promises that every sin, every sin, every sin will be punished with death. And so imagine you go back into that courtroom. You go into the courtroom as a father, as a husband, lost your kids, lost your wife, and the day of judgment comes where the sentence is announced and you, you go right before the judge and you say, judge, he's guilty, he's worthy of death, he's worthy of punishment, but would you, would you punish me instead of him? Let him go free and let me be punished. Could you, could you ever imagine doing that? No chance. You would never die in the place of your enemy. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. But see what Paul, the argument Paul is making is much stronger than that. Not only did God die for his enemies, Paul is pointing out that it is Christ, the son of God, who died for his enemies. My son Quinn, when he was in fifth grade, he was playing basketball. He's playing against a pretty good team, competitive game. He's guarding a kid that was like a foot taller than him, quite a bit taller than him. And in fifth grade, that's a big deal. And so he's trying hard, and this kid was getting annoyed with my son, Quinn. I'm watching the game unfold. And uh, this kid, eventually, in his frustration, uh, running down the court, he just put his foot out, and he tripped my son. So he, he tripped Quinn. And Quinn, he didn't see it, so he falls down on the ground. The ref doesn't call it. I watched it. The ref didn't, didn't call it. 
And the kid just got this smirk on his face. I mean, he's just looking at him, and he's just smirking. He, and I, I almost couldn't believe it. Now, uh, just to be clear, I didn't kill that kid who tripped my son because I'm a pastor. I, I'm a pastor. I wouldn't do that. But uh, there was a part of me. I'm not saying this is right, okay? Is this a safe place? I think it's a safe place here. I'm not saying this is right, but my instinct was go get him. Go get the kid. And not like hurt him, but just maybe a little bit. <laughs> but, like, just on me. but I wanted to just grab him and say, you shouldn't do that to anyone, and you can't do that to my son. I didn't do that. But that, that's the instinct inside of me. And I think if you're a, a father, if someone goes after your son, you're not like, oh, cool. You say, no way. No way. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, go back into the courtroom. There's an enemy who killed your wife and kids, sinned against you. And you as a father decide you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna take the punishment of your enemy. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to go to the judge and you're going to take your son who survived, who's innocent, and say, Judge, my son is innocent. He's guilty. My son is innocent. Would you punish my son in place of my enemy that he might go free? This is what Paul's teaching us. Verse 8, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were his enemies, Christ, the Son of God, died for us. He was punished in our place that we might live. And this is his eternal plan. And so when you consider the cost of the sacrifice, I mean, what did it cost us to be forgiven? It cost us the death of the Son of God. I mean, that's not, not cost us. What did it cost God for us to be forgiven? It cost God the death of the Son of God, his own Son. Uh, and you consider the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a God of infinite glory, then you consider how worthy we are. How worthy we are to receive that love. And the answer is we're infinitely unworthy. And so the distance between our worthiness and Christ's his, his life, his sacrifice on the cross, that is an infinite distance, demonstrating an infinite love, that he loves us. He loves us with an infinite love. This also means that the love of Christ was voluntary, that no one took his life, no one took the life of Jesus from him. John 10, 18, no one can take my life from me. What a great truth about Jesus. He's like, no one... You can try, no one can take my life. No one. I sacrifice it voluntarily. He says, I lay it down. I give it up. I have the power to take it up and I have the, the, the power to lay it down. I voluntarily lay it down. And this was a humiliating love. Where Jesus was treated like a criminal, he was treated like an animal, he was accused of being a liar, he was spit on, he was mocked, he was slapped, his beard was pulled out, he was punched in the face. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They flogged him mercilessly, bringing him within an inch of his life. They stripped him naked and they nailed him to a cross and they lifted him up. And after he was lifted up, the mockery did not stop. The taunting did not relent. They kept insulting him, insult after insult. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about the question, why the cross? Why a cross? I mean, couldn't, couldn't Jesus just have died by getting stabbed? Why a cross? Why was he lifted up? John 17, 1 says, Jesus spoke these things. This is right before the cross. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. The way the New Testament describes the hour of the cross, it's fascinating. He says hour, not 60 minutes, not 60 minutes. He means the time of the cross has come. The unfolding of God's eternal plan is about, it's about ready to happen. God's plan was always to offer his son on the cross for our sins. And Jesus says, the hour is almost here. The New Testament says that this is the hour of darkness, where the, the, the dominion of darkness reigns. This is the hour of the suffering of the Son of God. But here we see this hour described as the hour of his glory. The hour of his glory. The cross is the greatest demonstration of the glory of God in the universe. There is no greater demonstration of who God is than the cross. The creation of the universe, the stars, the moon, the planets, earth, life, everything reveals the glory of God. All of the Bible reveals the glory of God, but the cross is the apex. It is the greatest revelation of who God is to the world. The cross is where God would punish his son for us. The cross is where the wrath of God would be satisfied, where all of God's holy hatred for sin would be satisfied. The cross is where God would show the world he is righteous and that every sin must be paid for by death. And it is at the cross where God proves his love for us. How do you know God loves you? You look to the cross. You look to the cross. It is the demonstration of his love. Now, we want God to prove his love in so many other ways, and he does. There are many ways God proves his love for us. Just even having a church is a demonstration of his love. Giving us his word is a demonstration of his love. Giving us friends, demonstration of his love. Living in this country is a demonstration of his love. But see, the cross is the apex. It is the high, it is the high point of God's glory. It is the demonstration of his love for us. And so when your soul wavers, does God love me? Let your heart go to the cross and remember why he's there, dying in our place. Do you ever hear people say, you don't have to like everyone, but you need to love everyone? Have you heard this before? I hear it all the time. You don't have to like everyone, but you need to love everyone. And I agree with the spirit of this statement. I think that's probably good advice. It's the idea that you need to be loving when you don't feel like being loving. I agree with that idea. But this, this sentence, which is all over the place, is dividing affection from devotion. It's separating it. You don't feel it, but you do it. But see, no such division exists within the character of God. When God says he loves us, it means he loves us. He's not like, oh man, you guys are so annoying, you smell bad, you have bad personalities, you're dumb, but I'm God, so I have to love you. That's not what happens. It, it means that all of God, all of who God is, he loves you, and he's loved us forever, forever. 
He has loved us with an everlasting love. For as long as God has been, he's loved us. It is an unrelenting love. It is a triumphing love. And what makes that so remarkable is that he has known us forever as well. That God knows all of the ugliness of our souls. He knows everything that you've done wrong. He knows everything that you're going to do that's evil. He's known it forever. And yet, in the love of God, in the wisdom of God, he sends his son to die for all of our wretchedness. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. One pastor says, to be loved and not known is shallow. Amen. For someone to say, you don't even know, you don't know me. If, some, if, you, if I don't, don't know someone, they come up to me and they say, Dan, I just love you. It's like, well, that's better than you hating me, I guess, so thank you. But you don't know me. To be loved and not known is shallow. To be known and rejected devastates the soul. But to be known and loved, this changes everything. It changes everything. That God knows us down to the very core of our being. He knows us all the way down to the bottom. And he loves us to the sky. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die in our place. That we might be reconciled to him. That we might be with him forever. And so what is the result of this love? What is the effect of this love? It's not just sentiment. It is affection. It is that. But it's more than that. His love has accomplished something for us. And in verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul introduces us to a theological concept that we need to understand. And and when it comes to this concept, it, it plays out everywhere, but we see it very clearly in these verses. And so here's the theological concept. It's called already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. This is the nature of our salvation. And what this means is that it's totally accurate to make three statements at the exact same time. Here they are. We are, if you're a Christian, we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And you might think, well, if we are saved, how in the world, what does that mean that we will be saved? How does that work? Well, we see this play out in verse 9. This is the idea. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, what has the cross accomplished for us? What has his blood accomplished? Our justification. How are we justified? By his blood. The effect of his love demonstrated on the cross is our, ju- is our justification. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, now look what he says, will we be saved through him from wrath? So we are now justified, we are saved, and we will be saved. So let me ask you, are you, are you saved from the wrath of God right now? Christian, are you saved from the wrath of God right now? What's the answer? Yes and not yet. Yes, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ and not yet. There's a future wrath coming that he will save us from. A future wrath coming. Revelation 19, 11. Think about this description of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true. That's Jesus. And with, his, and with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame. And many crowns were on his head. Could you imagine seeing this? 
He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. He's a warrior. He's a judge. He's a king. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on, a white, on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. What's the name? King of kings and Lord of lords. See, this is the day of wrath. And what Paul is saying, listen, through the blood of Christ, you are justified. Therefore, you are at peace with this God. And he will save you from this wrath. That this wrath will not touch us. Why? Because the wrath of God, the fierce anger of God was already poured out on his son for us. No more wrath. And he will deliver us from this day. There is coming a day where, where the patience of God will expire. And you will meet this God. And if you don't know Christ, you will taste the wrath of God. But see, to be a Christian is to be at peace with him. He's saying, listen, through his death, justified. Through his death, at peace with this God. And he will save us from that. From that day. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. He's saying, through his death, think about it. Through his death, we, we are justified by his blood. And through his death, we're reconciled. The barrier of sin gone so that we are united to God in Christ. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Future tense, we will be saved by his life. And so the death of Jesus accomplishes our justification, our reconciliation. We're at peace with God. The blood of Jesus accomplishes our forgiveness. This is what Paul's saying. And he says, if if the death of Jesus accomplished all of this for us, then what does the life of Jesus accomplish? What will his life accomplish? And the answer is that his life, his resurrection, is the, is the promise, it is the guarantee that you'll get to the end. That, that we have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's our advocate. He ever lives to intercede for us. I mean, there's so many times I just think to myself, how are you going to make it to the end? Do you ever think about that? How are you going to make it to the end? How will you be faithful to Christ to the end? What happens if persecution comes, temptation comes, sickness comes? How do you make it? Paul says, if his death did all of this, imagine what his life will do. His life, his life means we get there. He saved us, and he will save us. Why? Because he loves you. That's it. Not because of your own goodness or your own virtue, because he loves you. If you're in Christ, you're going to make it. Verse 11. And not only that, but we also boast in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So what do we do now? So he, wills, he has saved us, he will save us. What do we do now? We boast in God. We boast in God. You will boast in something. Everybody boasts in something. Boast is your, to boast, when you boast, you're, you're showing what your confidence is in. And Paul says, we boast in God, through whom we have received reconciliation. He's our God. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our Lord. He's our Judge. He's the one who will get us to the end. He is the one who died in our place, that we might be with him forever. Now, just to close, one quick application, almost done, almost done. What's the application? Walk in love. Walk in love. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. How can you tell if you know the love of God? How do you know that you know the love of God? You walk in love. You give your life away like Christ to other people for their good, for their joy in Christ. The person who does not love does not yet know the love of God. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. That's who we are. And walk in love as Christ also loved us. We love because he first loved us. How can the love of God be poured out into our hearts and end with us? How can God's love be poured out into our hearts and then that love just ends with us? The very nature of the love of God is that when it's deposited, poured into our hearts, it overflows to others. And so as Christians, we are to be the most loving people on the planet. Now, we need, to we need to define love the way the Bible does. But we ought to be the most loving people on the planet. What do we want to be known for as a church? We get to decide. And the Bible would tell us that we ought to be the most loving people on the planet. Where we have a persevering love for God and one another. Where, where people know what it means to fail and still be loved. And we can be that way. God has given us this example. He's given us the command to live this way. And this is the example that we are to follow. So brothers and sisters, who do you need to start loving? Who are you bitter towards? What barriers are keeping you from really walking in love like Christ? That's what he's calling us to. So let's obey him. Let's pray.